You're listening to the Law & Business Podcast, hosted by Anthony Verna. We tackle the difficult questions where business and the law intersect to help you run a smarter business and avoid costly mistakes. Brought to you by Verna Law PC, a full-service law firm focusing on patents, trademarks, copyrights, domain names, and advertising law. For more information, call 914-908-6757 or send an email to anthony at vernalaw.com for more information. All right, and welcome to the Lawn Business Podcast, where we continue our series here at the International Bar Association's annual convention from beautiful Sydney, Australia. I'm here with John Eastwood. How you doing, John? Hey, good day. <laughs> <laughs> wow. After we just had an Australian solicitor on last time, that's going to be the worst Australian accent ever. Fair income. He, he will not approve of that. <laughs> John, John Eastwood is a member of the Taiwan Bar Association. How'd I do? Oh, not bad. No, Taipei Bar Association Taipei Bar is Association. a foreign lawyer. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> but I, I'm originally from the U.S. To come to Australia is to love it. You spend a bit of time. And then you know, I find that there are some things here in Australia that you know you hear enough times and you haven't seen it written out and you start to use the Australian uh, pronunciation uh, <laughs> inadvertently. So like I think as we found out the other day, there's a place uh, close to Perth that produces very wonderful wines called the Margaret River. But if you <laughs> hear it without seeing it, um, you hear it enough times from locals, you actually you know think it's the Margaret River, and you start <laughs> saying it like that. So I have to be careful not to use uh, Australian pronunciation just for any Australian lawyers out there. It's like my friends who live in Rome, they say, Weird things happen to your English after you stop using it. <laughs> I gotta try that next year. <laughs> next year, the IBA will be in Rome, so we'll be like, you know. <laughs> so, John, you focus on intellectual property and commercial agreements litigation in the greater China market. Again, how'd I do? Yeah, perfect, perfect. All right. <laughs> it's sometimes hard to, to describe everybody's practice area. So let's start here. I want to talk about a little bit about the main differences between Taiwan and China and trademark filings that trip up a lot of American and European companies because you've written about it, mm -hmm. and, and it is something that, that I've seen trip up my clients, and I'm sure you've seen plenty of problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing is that if you don't choose your Chinese name for your product or company, uh, the market will choose one for you because in a non-English environment, they actually don't say, I mean, you know, for example, uh, Coca-Cola, you know, it's uh, in uh, Chinese, it's Coca-Cola. And there's a lot of different subtle differences. So if you don't choose it, you can have an opportunity to give your product something that has a really nice meaning in the Chinese language. It has a nice sound, uh, you know, maybe even helps to promote your product. Or you go with whatever the consumers decide to start nicknaming your product. <laughs> and once they do that and you don't have it registered, uh, then there's the possibility of somebody else jumping in. And then it's so hard to undo those situations. And another thing I think you know is it's important to consider is you know logos because you know imitation is a form of flattery but sometimes people they think through they're like um, well I just want to get the word mark right and the logo people are very inventive in um, in the Greater China area at, at coming up with logos that look very close to yours and word marks that look very close they take advantage of the fact that a an O is curved like a C, and they, they very much tailor their infringing style, kind of bad faithy trademark applications to match in with the overall shape of the letters. And 
in that sense, you know, they actually very well know that they're trying to appeal to a non-English reading audience. And uh, you run a risk, a real risk with the trademark authorities there, um, or even the, uh, the prosecutors if you're taking a criminal action or anything else, because uh, if somebody goes and registers that and the word is spelled a bit differently, there's a funny tendency for, for officials to think, well, my English is really good, and I'm looking at this, and this is spelled really differently, um, but not really looking at the whole thing for how, sure. like, an O can curve like a C, or, you know, a, a capital I looks like a lowercase L. And there's a lot of tricky stuff like that that they do pull off. In China, then, it sounds like getting yourself to the intellectual property office and getting that application down is of utmost importance, unlike in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. So speed is of the essence. It's really smart to to get ahead of the curve. Uh, I would always recommend clients to consider to get a word mark, a logo, and to think about what their Chinese mark. And some companies haven't thought that through yet. But I, I think it's a good idea to try to have as much harmony as possible. So if you have, you know, one Chinese name that's registered in Taiwan and Hong Kong and in mainland China, that you all have it be the same one, uh, because I've seen it over and over that companies will register different marks because they didn't really think it through and they kind of did it piecemeal. They did one, then the other, and they were blocked out by the third. And you could see this many years ago, many, many years ago, going back like 15, 16, something like that, Intel. Intel had two different names in one for Taiwan, one for China. And it was like Ing, Ing Te'er and Ing Dai'er. And no company wants to be in that situation. I, I know that they, uh, I recall that they've, they, they fixed that up a long time ago. Okay. But there was a period of a uh, number of years where they, they just couldn't be under the same name uh, in all the jurisdictions. I know that a lot of companies who are foreign to the greater China market need to have a partner with feet on the ground. Is that somebody who's reliable for, for registering a trademark in the greater China market? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've seen some really <laughs> sneaky stuff there. So, like, on one hand, I mean, there's there are some people, it's like, as a matter of dealing with your downstream partners or even sometimes it's upstream it's a sourcing partner but you dealing with somebody oftentimes they want to have some sort of trademark protection in the jurisdiction they want to know that you are going to protect the brand and if you don't step in they're going to want to offer to step in and sometimes they do this on a good faith basis but we also caution to be very careful of what you allow them to do you should be filing your own trademarks don't let them file it because for example you know, the relationship at the beginning, at the outset is wonderful. And then you find out, you know, they say, well, you, you should have your trademarks registered. So you go and you file. Uh, you, let, you let them file in their name. Well, if the relationship with that sourcing agent or distributor ever goes south, you will not be able to terminate them very well because they're the ones holding your trademark. And right. there's no way to really say that's bad faith because they really <laughs> were using it. Correct. So undoing those situations, and you have to be very sneaky in trying to undo those situations because usually people only think about, well, I guess we got to get our trademarks back. <laughs> They're only thinking of that when they want to terminate the, the relationship. <laughs> I mean, just to be honest, I mean, you know, if somebody, if you're a distributor and somebody comes around and says, hey, uh, you know, isn't it, it's about time we, we change. I mean, you know, in fact, most of the time we have to, we have to go and say, look, this is a global policy and you're, you know, we have to give them some sort of assurance that they're not in danger of being right. terminated right away. 
and usually the client has to find some way of kind of moving forward you know even if it means having to retrain them or or try to improve the relationship if the relationship has been going bad they have to find you know, a smarter way because once you let somebody register your marks and and we've seen all sorts of stuff we've even seen things where someone says um, uh, the local partner says I know what to do. I can do it cheaper. I can file for it. <laughs> but, you know, they said they're going to file for you. Well, it turns out they filed for, uh, themselves. for themselves. And when you confront them, they say, <laughs> like, oh, I, I, um, yeah, I did that by accident. I filed it for it in my own name by accident. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, ah, oh, you know. And oftentimes they don't know your full product line. So they actually, in terms of the classes or the items that they register, they may actually really be thinking they you know for example they, they may distribute you know clock radios for you right. but they're not thinking of the fact that you also sell camcorders and uh you know uh skin creams or something <laughs> i mean like, you, you know they're not thinking of your full product line whatever right. it is and in china if i recall correctly uh the classes are much more specific than in other jurisdictions in the world. Am I insanely specific? So they've got all these <laughs> subclasses, and it's like you can have like two marks that are very similar be within the same class, but the subclasses are different, so it's okay. And you monkey around with that, you, you're really looking for trouble. You should have, you know, it costs a little bit more, but it's worth it to pay attention to the full spectrum of what you're really doing and what you anticipate doing realistically. I saw a Japanese company, and it was funny. It was really weird because what they did was. Um, and I, they're, they're quite famous, but they, uh, because they do a children's TV program Okay. and you know, they have not just the typical things of like CDs and DVDs for songs and for sure. the TV show. And they have magazines and publications cause they put out a magazine. And publish, I understand Makes perfect sense. Printed materials. So, but they also registered, okay, well for clothes where, you know, for t-shirts for kids and things like that, you would imagine that's, but then also for every form of kitchenware possible, <laughs> And kitchenware. Yes. So like aprons. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, in case you wanted to buy Bins. a toast machine that would put an image of this particular. Oh, sure. You know. I, I've seen that with Battlestar Galactica. Put your toast in, get a Cylon <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> image on your toast. Right, right, right. I think Hello Kitty was a pioneer in that area. And, and, and in this case, it's like a little, um, it's a little, it's a little tiger called Chowhu. And it's interesting because, because we were looking at it and. We we're like, oh my God! They have registered trademarks in um, literally every single class you could register. <laughs> I mean, they're, they've like they've got registrations. I think it's you know it's something like for um, financial services and like you know um, you know banking and you know and wow. I'm just I'm like, why, why, why would you do this? Is that because they're actually in those in those subclasses, or is that just because? They're registering to register and block everybody else, and that's just the wild, wild west. I think I think they were thinking of going for a blocking mark. I think they were, and that's kind of that's going passe, and it's also insanely expensive. And I think maybe what happened is I think one of the important things is, on one hand, I have to tell clients, tell a certain group of clients, you need to register for more. But I have another group of clients who doesn't know anything about trademark, and it goes the opposite way, where I have to tell them you need to register less because you are running a serious risk for non-use cancellations all over the place. Well, th and that's the same advice I give clients in the United States. I mean, if you're filing for a whole bunch of goods and services, even if they're in the same class 
as what you're doing, you're going to run that risk there as well. And I've certainly seen that happen. Like you have a list of 300 goods and services. I know you're only making two, you know, so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but someday I want to build a rocket ship. I mean, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's hilarious because it's like, you know, you, you tell them it's like, oh, OK, well, you know, I mean, there was a client several years ago. That really, what they do is they they're property developers. OK. But then they started thinking, well, you know. I, as part of my work, uh, we often import fancy schmancy tiles and things like that from other places. So maybe I'm a tile importer. It's like, no, you're not really offering that service to the outside world. Right. You're doing this for yourself. You bring in, you, you import tiles. This is not like you're trying to put down business scopes in a corporate registration because you might actually do that activity. You might want to be registered as an importer in some way in that right. other customs corporate registry sense but but from the standpoint of uh engaging in the business of like do you offer the service to third parties no do you advertise it no do you do you show up at trade shows and say i import tiles no it's like you have to walk them through and say please because you know i'm i'm not greedy and i uh you know but when i saw this i saw this mm -hmm. this one company and they registered in like 45 classes and they'd you know and they'd registered multiple marks across that and i was just like the day that this was confirmed and paid for, I mean, I don't and I'm sure they put together a package of some kind where they said, right. like, you know, I'll give you 10 percent off. Sure. You know, but even then you could probably buy a boat with that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Getting back to a local partner on the ground, I had a situation in the opposite direction in the United States where mm -hmm. the company contacted me because their trademark was being canceled. Yeah. And it turns out that it was in their their they actually had a salesperson. So they had in the salesperson's name in the United States because he was their head salesperson, except he wasn't their head salesperson in the United States anymore. Mm -hmm. So here the trademark is, is now being canceled because this person is effectively not using the trademark in the United States. So I filed a motion to change parties. And what the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board in, did instead was they decided to join my client, the, uh, the, the company, and meanwhile, here is a person who really didn't use the mark because he was the salesman. Yeah. <laughs> so he wasn't using the mark himself. He now also is out of the United States living. I forget, in, I forget in which country he was living, but he wasn't in the United States anymore. So now he's still on the hook to testify because he's one of the parties. <laughs> and the board wasn't going to acknowledge the fact that he wasn't there. He was listed as the owner of the trademark at the time of the cancellation, and he was kept in the, in the proceeding. Oh my god! Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't happen often in the U.S., but it, well, in Asia, there's a lot of kind of weird legacy issues. I mean, and you know, sometimes people they, people are really good at starting stuff up, and they're really bad at shutting things down, or they're really bad at like bringing finality to a right. You know, and I think it's, maybe it's because it's awkward. I think there's like a mental block sometimes that people in companies have, or they don't think comprehensively about these things. And I, to give a funny example, there, when a company goes inactive, often what they do is. Rather than going through the real procedures for shutting it down, they just kind of abandon the company and stop okay. paying taxes and doing their filings. You know, that's in Asia. But but uh, you run across like I, I, you know, I was really surprised once we were we were um, we were actually hired by a global law firm to shut down their Taipei office, which was no longer peopled anymore. And you know, it's kind of funny from a professional standpoint. You know, in the legal profession, we actually had to go find because nobody had you know the office was there, the furniture was still there, but nobody had been showing wow. up to work for several months, and so. We had to actually find the former and still, according to the records, registered managing partner 
and go and ask them, hey, can you can you like stamp some of these forms to like shut down this, you know, sure. like can we just you know can we assist you with this, um, you know, can we can we get this done for you because you're not doing it. <laughs> but I mean, like a lot of companies run across this too. So so when it comes to the trademarks, they never want to have that awkward conversation with like, hey, you know, remember like ten years ago when I said it was really cool if you you went and you filed all sorts of stuff for us and in, in your own name and. You know, that was kind of a bad idea. And, you know, I know you're not even working with us anymore and you're going to another country, but like, you know, can, yeah. can we have your signature on these three documents to like just, you know, you know, go go take your family out for a nice dinner. Here's, a, you know, like they don't think about how to ease this or they don't right. think how to like, because there's always human issues behind this. I mean, one of the nice things about intellectual property is you're dealing with like perceptions of a brand and on the record one of the few times you'll find me agreeing with Donald Trump on something will be this is that when he says like oh you know the value of my business the value of my Trump brand the value of my brand uh, goes up and down depending on how I feel in a day <laughs> <laughs> but there is a very subjective nature to the value of trademarks and of course and like you know what you do with it and you know in the franchise area for example I mean I was you know, that that leads to some really interesting issues where there's a, such a close, tangible relationship between quality and service and what you do and the value of the brand. And every day you're kind of starting fresh. If there's any kind of like, for example, you have a restaurant, a franchise restaurant, you serve, if one of your franchisees, you know, serves someone up a big bowl of botulism or something, you know. <laughs> And, you know, there's so much about why quality inspections and safety inspections yes. and and it's one of those issues that that when somebody tells me I want to franchise my business, I say, OK, my first step with you is you give me your your business steps. And like chances are when they're starting from that standpoint, they haven't even started like, what are their steps to their business? You know, forget about the, yes, the, you have to license the name. You have to license the colors on the wall. You have to license what furniture everybody is buying. Yes, but you're licensing the business model. So write down your business model is always step number one. And then two is how do you make sure that the other guy follows that? Right, right, right. I mean, I've got a new client, actually. It's, it's an old friend of mine. But but I, I was telling him, because uh, he, he runs an investigation firm, He's done a lot of intellectual property raids over the years, but he, he's he's starting to move into the franchising of a of a restaurant concept, um, in which he would be the franchisor. And I I talked with him. And I said, you know, you're actually in an extraordinary advantage here because in terms of checking up on your franchisees, some of them are going to be the ones that embrace the system and doing things the right way. They're going to really like this, and the ones who kind of rebel against. And there's always a few right. that like, you know, I know how to cook this better. You know, like uh, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna turn the oven up a little more. You know, they do want to do something. Di you know, I'm only gonna wash half the dishes or something. I mean, anyone who tries to buck the system, I said, well, you know, you've got an investigation firm. Right. I mean, the possibility of being able to sneak someone into the middle of their, you know, or just to watch what they do, you know, or to take a look. You're going to be able to document the the failings of anyone who fails. So so you'll have another reason for, you know, creating this uh, this enforcement climate, you know, this, this thing where people will want to comply. So speaking of enforcement, let's talk about manufacturing in China because a lot of people who are starting businesses or, or own businesses that are manufacturing – consumer products pick up the phone call me and say well I want to manufacture in China or I'm currently manufacturing in the US and I know China is cheaper and and I want to save that money and I get to be a little cynical about the protections mm -hmm, <laughs> available right. in China but uh, can you save me from that that cynicism that 
a client will a company will go into China, manufacture in China, and then see counterfeit products everywhere. Well, yeah, there's there's an interesting thing. I mean, okay, for, so for one thing is that a lot of people who do business in Taiwan don't realize that they're probably also doing business in China without knowing it. Right. Because the Taiwan company has a factory, and that's really where they're going to make the goods. But in China, all the time there's 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 the potential. If you have a product and they know it's hot, it's they know it's like the hot new thing. I mean. Then you run a risk that somebody who's a manager who's learned how to make this thing or knows how to make this thing is simply going to go to another factory and start cranking out the fakes of it or three. Right. So in, in clothing apparel, a lot of there's there's your ex your former factories are actually a big source of problems because if you don't close things out cleanly, if you don't grab the molds back, or if you don't get you don't find a way to strip away from them the cap, you know the capacity to do this, right? And then um, what they'll do, you know, you'll see that, I mean, we see this all the time, for example, in, in shoes and apparel and other things. They've learned how to make some fancy, uh, highly fashionable clothes and shoes and other things, and they don't want to stop making money from that. <laughs> and I've seen also this kind of weird, like, kind of suicidal desire or, like, counterproductive. Uh, it's like that desire to make a little extra profit. So they're making, like, $200 million, uh, I was going to change the currency to something, like, more U.S.-ish. Uh, <laughs> say, say you're making $2 million. You're making $2 okay. million U.S. dollars a year making legit products. And, boy, aren't you happy. You're making, you know, that's like, you know, you're making $2 million profits from making tons of stuff for an American company. And in order to make an additional $200,000, you, like, go and and you run an extra line at night now the company finds out about it they find out that like you know products coming out uh that you're using seconds you know that sure. you're and you're selling things out the back door and that uh, your employees have been hiding things under and, and you the, get the classic definition of a gray market good right so you get kind of like you get busted you know making stuff that's it's it was sort of semi-legit but now it's an infringement it would be actually considered an infringement because it's an unauthorized product Correct. whereas like some gray markets they're going to be like a lot of the gray markets are going to be like it would be intended for the philippine market but because that one was priced lower you can arbitrage that by bringing okay. that in elsewhere but in this case what happens is they lose the whole deal so they were making you know two million dollars and they decided to get an extra Two hundred thousand, and added on a ten percent, right? You know, bit of juice for themselves, and in doing that, they lost everything. And it's a little weird because you know they, they were on top of the world. I mean, like they, you know, they actually had a strong relationship with the original sure. company. Now there's no trust. Now nobody will work with them. Right. And so now they've kind of like descended into the pirate world of like, you know, every time you see them thereafter, they're all they're doing is making pirated goods. When when I've dealt with that situation in the U.S., I've needed to sue the seller of the counterfeit goods. But you can't – for bigger companies, you can't go whacking that mole every single time. Uh, so, so what's the better way of taking care of that? Well, one thing is to watch them really carefully. So, I mean, the clients that have good compliance programs tend to go to their factories. You can't start a relationship with a factory in China – and then just say, oh, well, you know, I'm done walking around dusty factories. I'm not going to do this anymore. I don't have to do this for five years. You know, that's a bad way to go about it. You should be going there like, you know, you don't get cheap on that. You need to be over there like every couple of months. And you should keep track of your waste product. You should have like into your contracts like very clear ways that they're supposed to control things like buttons and zippers and all sorts of other products that have, you know, like, for example, a lot of clients uh, in the fashion industry, they'll have marked into the button 
you know, around the rim sure. of it, their, their sure. product name, um, your tags, the things that will be sewn into the inside. In fact, you know, there are companies that also provide, you know, like a lot of security devices or, you know, things like that. QR co codes that are scannable and where... Or blockchain these days, if you're able to get that level of sophistication. See, that's where everything's going is like, you know, the, so the stuff behind uh, bitcoins, uh, the, the blockchain technologies, things like that are eventually going to start providing greater authentication abilities. And uh, for example, one of my one of my clients has a deal where it's like they've got a, like, uh, an app which allows them to very swiftly check if a product is legit or not. And there's things that they know. They have a lot of expertise. They know, right. like, they know what their boxes exactly are supposed to look like, and they, they've built into it little protections. I have a client that uh, franchises, does franchise restaurants and stuff, and so one of the things they do is all aspects of the decor of that restaurant are also copyrighted. Sure. So they're thinking beyond the trademark, but they're also mm -hmm. thinking to, like, uh, well, you decided to keep our wallpaper up. And it's like, how do I know? <laughs> how do you know that's your wallpaper? Well, I don't know. here's our name. We, you know, the name of our company has actually been put into the foot of that, uh, you know, that animal over there. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's that, that's highly creative. So, in terms of manufacturing in China, can you help me be optimistic about manufacturing in China and? economic benefits thereof and protection of intellectual property. There are good companies out there. There are good Chinese companies that, that actually, I mean, just, you know, people are people. So it's not just like, you know, one of the prime regrets of one of my colleagues is that he felt that within the greater China context that, you know, his great sadness, uh, he was a professor, so he has like, you know, these philosophical thoughts. Sure. And he thinks, he's like, my big sadness is that, you know, there's, le there's not as much trust between people as, you, as, as I would like to see. And it's absolutely true. But people are people, and you can find people that you can trust, and you can also build bonds. And I know that you know in all these books about how to do business in China, they talk about guanxi, you know, the relationship. Sure. And in the Chinese uh, sense, when you add shui, uh, the word shui to the end of a word, it's like uh, like our equivalent in English of ology. Right. Like uh, biology or chemistry, you know, kind of almost like chemistry. Or so any this is almost like a relationship biology. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> in mainland China, there's this, there's actually a phrase which is called guanxi shui. Um, and many years ago, there was a really good book written by this by Mayfair Yang, a professor. Um, she was visiting Peking University uh, a long time back. And, uh, you know, I read her book. Uh, a lot of us uh, loved reading this, but it talked about guanxi shui, the concept of relationshipology, and the notion that you can actually take it to that next level. Where you start out, and maybe it was a bit like networking, but then you actually move it on to a real, like, friendship and a real kind of combined, you know, like a shared. Uh, I'm not going to say shared destiny because that sounds too uh, goofy, but <laughs> but like you know, a kind of sense where you you actually have like a, a genuine sense of feeling and caring about what happens to, right. and you know, so you, that's why you go out. That's why you go to these dusty factories and you drink a million cups of tea and you go out for a big banquet and you sing karaoke with them. Right. And yet you, you smoke a million cigarettes. No, you don't have to smoke cigarettes anymore. That's old school. But like the old days you, you do these things and you still, you know, in this modern day, um, you, you, you pay attention to people. So paying attention to other humans, treating your Chinese manufacturing counterparts like, you know, in a, in a humane, good way can actually have big dividends and not just to think of it. I mean, uh, the main problems I've ever seen for people have been when they ignored that context and they went, they established a relationship with a factory, shook hands, signed an agreement, and then never paid attention. 
because it's also a part of human nature that if, for example, you know, if you have a licensing a relationship with a company for, you know, and they make widgets and if they're right. the ones kind of handling a little bit more of the selling, if you do that, then, you know, for example, underreporting. Right. If they note, if they realize, for example, one month, they left off a zero at the end of the number of items. <laughs> and you don't notice. And you don't notice. They're going to be like, they'll do it again. They'll do it again. Oh, my God. Now, the first time was a mistake. And like the next time, it's like it ain't such a mistake. And you're not uh, clearly you're not paying attention. So if you have a person who pays attention, like, hey, what's this? And a zero missing. You know, like they'll be like, well, oh, 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 better include it next time. Hey, oh, yeah, I'm going to be over in your office next month. You know, let's go out for right. lunch, you know. And they'll be like, oh, he's coming here. I guess, I guess we can't, like, you know, uh, we, he comes here all the time. They make decisions, rational business, right. you know, decisions about what they're going to do and how they're going to treat you. And if you're someone that they like and uh, that they do business with and which there's, like, a real sense. But if you're, like, some faraway person just kind of pushing remote control buttons, asking for orders of stuff, right. you know, that, that whole dynamic is missing. Once you're out of sight, out of mind, it's going to break down. Yeah, yeah, and I think bridging that barrier is important. I mean, it, you know, there there are language issues and there are things, and I know that Chinese sense of entertaining to some Westerners is not as much fun as, but you know, the same thing for it goes the other way. I mean, like you know, sometimes the Western idea of you know you you want to take them to a baseball game or you know to a football game or something like that, and they're they're like, what is going on? <laughs> So, you know, I mean, fair, about, uh, fair play. I mean, you go out and you be a good sport, you know, um, take good care of them. They take care of good care of you. Um, be very careful to listen, you know, word of mouth, pay attention to things. Sure. Occasionally double check things, be, you know, watch things carefully. And then you can have a productive relationship because there are some really honor bound companies. And I have seen some like companies where we did full on investigations and we had people recording phone calls mm -hmm. and doing, you know, cause you can do that, you know, one party's, you know, approval. So you, you eventually, you catch someone out. I had a CEO come over to our office once from a, from a large Taiwanese, um, you know, manufacturer and he profoundly apologized and he immediately signed the apology notice that if we'd wanted to, we could have published mm -hmm. and we didn't, our client chose not to, because they actually looked at it and they said this guy, you know, was didn't question anything. He was we were we were very tough, and he didn't flinch in apologizing completely and immediately and taking immediate remedial steps to ensure that his staff never did any of this stuff again. John, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for being on. Huge pleasure. And maybe we could do this again over Skype. Excellent, excellent. Looking forward to it. <laughs> all right, John. Thank you. This has been the Law & Business Podcast. Visit VernaLaw.com for more episodes. To contact Verna Law PC, send an email to anthony at VernaLaw.com or call 914